Thank you again for joining us. My name is Nekka Siederstrom and I'm the Director of the Clinical Ethics Department at Children's Minnesota. And my co-moderator, Damon Hayes, will take some time to introduce who you are. Good afternoon, welcome everyone. My name is Damon Haynes. I am a professor of medicine at the University of Mississippi School of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care. And also I'm the Associate Dean for Admissions for the University of Mississippi School of Medicine. So welcome, we're so glad you guys can join us today. Yes, uh, today is going to be a candid, direct, very raw and real conversation on racism, COVID, whiteness and inequities. And I'm very thankful that you all join us for this conversation. And thinking about why we decided to have this talk, uh, what stuck in my head the most was at the end of Dr. Ibram Kendi's book on how to be an anti-racist, he discusses racism as a cancer uh, that has metastasized in the body of America. And in how we practice medicine in this country, when we hear a patient has got a metastasized disease, there's two things that we do. We either jump all in and say, there's all this stuff that we need to get done. Here are all the opportunities of research studies or surgeries or chemo or radiation. And we just go full court press to try and beat the disease. Or we say, We've done all that we could do. This is one of those diseases that just we can't, we can't cure, but we can go really hard at trying to take comfort and trying to protect you from the side effects of having this disease and help you as you go along your journey. And when I think about racism as a cancer, I think about uh, how for 400 plus years, this cancer has been growing in our society, in the body of our society. And if we think about how our patients usually act, when you know there's something wrong, takes a while before they decide to actually go in to see the doctor. And COVID to me was that first incident of the patient of America deciding I probably should go see the doctor. It's really clear there's something wrong. There's a lot going on here, but I don't know. I don't really know if I want to face that reality yet. So they still kind of back down. And then we had the murder of George Floyd. And that ended to me as the the incident in which the patient had some event that no longer allowed them to pretend that this thing wasn't happening to their body. And so George Floyd was the reason why the patient of America picked up the phone to call. And now we need to address a treatment plan and we need to come up with a way of managing and moving forward because I feel like if we do it right, then we can beat this that this is not one of those cancers where I think that we just pacify until we all suffer through it. I think this is one of those cancers that we can win. So with that, I would like to introduce our wonderful panel. Dr. Eduardo Medina is a board certified family physician at the Park Nicollet Clinics in Minneapolis, an adjunct associate professor at the University of Minnesota Medical School, Department of Family Medicine and Community Health. He's published in journals such as the New England Journal of Medicine, and if you all haven't read it, I would encourage you to, we will provide a link to it, the latest article um, with his wonderful wife, Dr. Rachel Hardiman, called Stolen Breaths, and the Journal of American Me Medical Association. Dr. Medina has worked throughout his career in education to advance health equity and high-quality healthcare for all communities. His previous work includes engaging with under-resourced communities to improve access to pain, palliative, and hospice care in New York City, where he's originally from. He has also examined obstogenic ob ob environments associated with food deserts and social economic inequality. 
Dr. Medina currently serves on the board of directors for The Ladder, which is a nationally recognized progressive mentorship program exposing underrepresented populations to career in the health professions. Dr. Medina completed his MPH at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health and his MD in family medicine residency at the University of Minnesota Medical School. Dr. Medina earned an undergraduate degree in Latin American studies with a concentration in sociology from Wesleyan University. Welcome, Dr. Medina. Thank you. Our next presenter is Mr. John Bewin. Mr. Bewin is an audio program director at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, where he teaches and produces the center's documentary podcast, Seen on Radio. Before joining CDS, Dr. I'm sorry, Mr. Bewin reported from Minnesota Public Radio, NPR News, and American Radio Works. His work has aired on programs such as All Things Considered, This American Life, Studio 360, and the BBC World Service. Since its launch in 2015, Seen on Radio has received more than 7 million downloads, and the show's Seeing White series was nominated for a 2017 Peabody Award. John is the co-editor of the book, Reality Radio, Telling True Stories in Sound, and I'm really grateful and thankful that he agreed to be on this uh, webinar with us today. So welcome, John. Thanks, Naka. Good to be here. And our final presenter today is Dr. James Williams. Dr. Williams is a pulmonary critical care physician at the GV Sonny Montgomery VA Medical Center in Jackson, Mississippi, and assistant professor of medicine. He obtained his medical training at the Meharry Medical College and completed his residency and fellowship at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He was a Chest Foundation awardee in 2016, and his areas of interest include lung cancer. He's originally from Virginia Beach, and he enjoys all things sun and sand, and I couldn't agree more. Thank you, Dr. Williams, for joining us as well. Thank you very much. Okay, so... Let's get this conversation started. I would really appreciate it if all of you um, can just tell me what racism means to you. What has it meant to you in your life and in your practice? How has it impacted and affected who you are? Uh, and, and how is it continuing that impact today? Anyone can go first. We'll let the panelists go before, before Nick and I uh, come back since we're moderating. So uh, either of our panelists who'd like to go first, feel free. Well, I guess I can go first here. Um, I would say for me, uh, how I feel about racism is that, you know, it, it stands for systems and, and processes that um, I would say there's a certain intentionality there um, and it's designed to advance one group as well as designed to disadvantage another group. Um, it's rooted in advantage and privilege, and this privilege is then passed down. And so it continues to perpetrate. Um, and, you know, racism is, is, is also a disease, you know, as, as Nika had uh, previously discussed, that, you know, it is a disease that affects those that are afflicted by it, and it also poisons the people that um, are the perpetrators and corrupts their hearts. Um, in terms of my experience in America, I would say that um, racism is ingrained as a natural part of the black experience. And I could confidently say that there isn't a person that 
um, is of African-American descent that would be able to discuss um, their life as an American and, and their life in America without having some um, perspective through the lens of their race. I'll let go. John Beeman here. <clears throat> and by the way, yes, Neka, I think I'm the only person here on the panel who does not have doctor in front of my name. Uh, but it's okay, I'm not ashamed of that. Um, so I'm a long time and I'm not a medical person at all. I'm an old long time journalist, documentary maker. Um, what has race meant to me? I, I think that I, for someone growing up in uh, a smallish town in Minnesota in the 70s and so on, which was a virtually entirely white place, uh, I probably had a somewhat unusual experience <clears throat> in that uh, my parents, and particularly my, my father, for a set of reasons that aren't worth going into here, had, had a kind of a strong interest in race as a social justice issue and just the, the fact that it was a, a real problem. And actually, my, my father's experience goes back to his childhood and just and getting, be, being a Jackie Robinson fan and just had kind of getting it into his heart, what is going on with this. And anyway, so, so we were raised with this sense that this is a real um, profound social and moral problem in this country. And then as I became, you know, I've been a journalist now for 35 years and it's been a recurring interest of mine. For close to 20 years, I've lived in North Carolina, which is, which is a richly diverse place. Um, Durham, where I live, is roughly 40% African-American, 40% white, 20% Latino and, and um, immigrants from all over the place. Um, and so it, it's, been a, and it's been sort of a puzzle for me, a kind of an intellectual puzzle, sort of how does this work exactly? And what, how did, why, does, why is race such a persistent force in our society when it's so clearly wrong? It just seems like such a no-brainer, right, that it's the race, you know. So anyway, so, so it's been something that I've pursued in a kind of professional way, and I had what I think is something of a breakthrough when I wound up doing this podcast series in 2017 that looked at racism from the perspective of whiteness, of understanding where this idea of a, of a white race came from, why it was invented. Of course, it was in, invented in conjunction with blackness, say more about it was invented to justify slavery frankly um and and then kind of moving forward from there and looking at the way that it functions and and really just getting much better at seeing it um in fact that was the title of the podcast series seeing white because we as white people are trained not to see racism or to see that we are in fact a racial group and in fact we are the re the inventors of the very idea of multiple human races, which is a social construct. Um, so stop me I'll, before I go on and on, but, but that's a kind of a, you know, that's a sense of it so that it's become, that was an enormously clarifying experience. And obviously my, that work was based on uh, some of the leading scholarship, including um, in particular African-American scholars who've looked at how white supremacy works and how whiteness works. Um, so I'll stop there for now.
I think we have a strong consensus here between Dr. Williams and Mr. Beaven that racism is a system. And like any system, it functions with outputs, inputs, and it propagates itself. Um, in the American context, we talk about the genocide displacement of indigenous Americans and the enslavement of the African, of an African population brought here uh, with the purpose of demeaning, uh, discounting their worth to allow them, again, to be, to allow the system of exploitation to flourish. And we have to understand this historical perspective if we're gonna understand where we are today. I mean, you know, the axiom is, how did we get here? We have to understand how we got here. We got to understand where we are. We have to know how we got here. And just like John said, once you see the system for what it is, you can't unsee it. So you see, you know, when you hear, uh, just shut up and dribble, when you hear, oh, but what about black on black crime? You hear, oh, uh, the welfare mothers. You hear these code words. You know exactly what you're seeing if you have the insight and education. And, and one thing that I believe we've come to a reckoning is that people, uh, we were just talking about the New York Times bestseller list. People are now acknowledging that they need to get this analysis so that they can understand what's going on. Because if you don't understand the role of structural racism and white supremacy, then you're not gonna understand a lot of things that are happening in this country. So um, when we talk about how racism has impacted my life, having this understanding uh, and this conception of what's going on, it's allowed me to navigate a lot of things and being able to say, no, what I'm seeing now, that's part of the racist system that we operate in, particularly when it comes to medicine which has often tried to distance itself uh, from engaging in social determinants of health uh, and try and play a neutral role. Well, we clearly know that there are no neutral roles uh, in this uh, struggle. You're either fighting against structural racism or pension or you're silent in your condoning. Thank you for that. Um, I think I wanna kind of follow up with that um, in two ways. Eduardo, you, you mentioned this, if once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I think that part of the struggle that a lot of people are having is when the um, evidence that COVID highlighted of this, the in, inequities and the struggles of African-American populations with healthcare, that when that came up, people felt like it was a shock. It, it made news cycles as if this was novel and as if there was something about it that we're all just learning. Can we talk a little bit about how we got to a place where we know <laughs> this is real, but for whatever reason, there is the privilege of a majority to say that this is a shock. And, and how does someone who is just now realizing that this is not a shock, this is the norm, how can they start to move forward? Well, I think part of the answer to your question is that this way of thinking, it's an ideology that's cultivated. And just as structural racism has infiltrated the political system, the criminal justice system, uh, the system of economic development, it's infiltrated our education system mm -hmm. so that we don't think, you know, we are not taught to see what the underlying causes, the root causes of a lot of these issues are. So it's, it's shocking then when you're confronted with the reality that you can't deny, 
like the murder of George Floyd. Anyone that's been able to stomach watching that can see that that was a murder. It was nothing else than that. It was, it was, it was horrific. It was brutal. It was violent. But that's not the only horrific, brutal, and violent thing that has occurred in American history. So again, we're able to place that act within the context of a long history of uh, police brutality, of devaluing black bodies and black lives. Um, so I think it's purposeful that we don't that that people don't come to these conclusions because if they were taught and trained to come to these conclusions then the system of racism would quickly, quickly find itself on unsure footing. So, and I think the media is complicit in this, you know, our education system, um, but all the, all the things that influence how we quote unquote think um, are, are affected by the system of structural racism. So the second part of your question, now that the blinders have come off and you realize, wow, that, that there's actually a system that's perpetuating particularly with COVID-19, that the most vulnerable amongst us in the population have the least access to care. You know, what do we do about that? It's a crisis, particularly for the healthcare system, because, you know, the premise is that the healthcare system is here to help, right? When in fact, we're caught totally unable to address the systemic issues that are causing these disparate outcomes in COVID-19. And you know it's 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 very uh, it's very uh, disheartening. Eduardo, that that was very enlightening and very good. It, it it brings out so many questions that I want to ask. I want to go to the James and, and John, and I think Neck will probably have to remind me that she and I are moderating and that we're not panelists. So I won't. I'll try not to speak too much and, and maybe give something wrap up at the end. But you brought home so many points, and and I want to get John and James to address a couple of those. Uh, James, if you could talk a little bit about, you know, I, I know most of the people on this, not all though, are, are members of CHEST and, and a lot of people in the healthcare field, but others aren't. Why is COVID uh, affecting the black community so much more in terms of diagnoses and, and uh, mortality? And then John, I want you to be thinking about a question that I want to ask that Eduardo brought up about structural racism and how is it every level? And what do you say to those people that disagree? They say, I disagree with you wholeheartedly. Structural racism is not at the educational level. Sure, maybe we can talk about policing and all that we've seen is evident, but why is it that we say it's at the educational level, it's at the healthcare level? And so I want you to be thinking about that as well. Thank you very much. So, you know, just to go back to, to George Floyd, you know, I, I believe that it was a very singular moment in American history that was undeniable in its brutality was in its level of inhumanity that I think for most everyone in this country, they could no longer say, I don't believe you. I think at that point, black people were believed. And so there are so many moments, even including discussions that were had in the media regarding COVID-19, you know, why are African-Americans um, more likely you know, to get COVID, why are they more likely to pass away from COVID? And, you know, many people were saying, you know, it's not just about race or it's not just about these pictures or videos of African-Americans at a party or not socially distancing or not wearing masks, but it felt like they were not being believed. And I believe that George Floyd has brought an opportunity 
to bring light towards COVID as well as a lot of issues in society regarding systemic racism that hopefully, you know, people can start being believed. So to kind of further talk about the answer to that question, you know, obviously we could spend hours on why, you know, African-Americans are, seem to make up um, more than their represented share of COVID cases as well as deaths. Um, but just kind of some brief insights into it. Um, it, it was, it's actually a very nuanced answer as, as one would think. Um, unfortunately, our statistics um, and numbers on it um, are not complete. And so, you know, the picture that we have um, of its effect on the African-American community also was not complete. There was an article that was um, published in the Atlantic in early February that had showed that only 29 states um, were giving out racial data um, in terms of the number of cases, as well as the deaths in terms of racial breakdown. So there currently is a COVID tracker and that has since also um, brought out a COVID racial tracker that has looked at um, all of the state data in terms of the number of cases as well as the number of deaths. Um, and however, still unfortunately this information is, is only as good as what is released. Um, actually looking at the tracker, the state of North Dakota actually does not publish any data um, on racial breakdowns uh, regarding COVID cases. Um, and actually even larger states with larger African-American populations, such as the state of Louisiana, um, does not publish um, numbers um, and a racial breakdown on the number of cases. They're only giving a racial breakdown on the deaths. So looking at that, you know, we only have an incomplete picture as to the scope of what's really going on. Um, but already we already know that it is um, a very bad story in, in terms of the African-American community. So as, as to why um, African-Americans um, seem to be more likely to be infected with COVID as well as to die from COVID. So we already know about um, the things that have been discussed in regards to comorbidities. African-Americans have higher um, incidences of diabetes as well as higher incidence of obesity, you know, which is true. But kind of looking deeper into the picture, African-Americans are more likely to be uninsured. They're more likely to be to have um, poor access to healthcare, um, to have transportation to healthcare. Um, <clears throat> they're also more likely to be on the front lines, working essential jobs that they're not able to do from home. They're more likely to be working in grocery stores. They're more likely to be the Uber drivers or other transportation drivers. They're more likely to be working in the warehouses that are delivering materials for other people that have the luxury of working at home. Additionally, um, African-Americans are more likely to live in more densely populated cities. Um, they're also more likely to live in more densely um, populated homes. Even their homes itself are more likely to have multi-generations where even at home, social distancing is not even possible. Also looking at the economics of it, the average um, African-American household net worth is only $17,000. The average net worth of a white family is $171,000. All of these things, you know, really play into, you know, why diseases hit the African-American population much harder. Even in, even in recession, recession times cause a loss of 44% of African-Americans net worth compared to only a 26% of net worth loss in white families. So looking at all of these things, you know, it really points to the fact that, you know, 
this is not by chance. It's not by a lack of will in the African-American community, but there are social determinants of health and there are social factors that have um, been in place that have allowed these things to happen. You know, it's really impossible to have a discussion about race, you know, without racism being the center of that conversation. And uh, there's a great quote um, by the writer Ta-Nehisi Coates in his book, The World of Me, that says, you know, race is the child of racism and not the father. And so, you know, really looking at all of these things, we really have to put racism in systems that have been put in place whenever we're looking at answers to a lot of these complex questions, such as why African-Americans have um, died and been infected a lot more um, than their population sharing COVID-19. Thank you, John. Well, I take that. <laughs> so um, Dr. Haynes asked, I guess, sort of what's, system what's systemic white supremacy, structural racism, and is it real, right? And this is, this is uh, I mean, I do think we're in, in an extraordinary moment in which probably more, I like to think, more white Americans than maybe ever in this nation's history are sort of turning their attention to and asking that question and, and being in a position of being willing to explore the answer to that question with some openness. Um, thus, the, uh, what we were talking about with all the books of the bestseller lists and people listening to podcasts like mine and watching 13th and et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, but I do think there's still a whole lot of white Americans in particular who are still kind of scratching their heads or being actually quite resistant and saying, oh, come on, isn't this all in the, hi in, in the, in the history books? And when are we going to get to move on from this? I don't think there's really, and I get some of this on social media to this day, um, I don't think there's really much racism to speak up now. But come on, well, let's, let's start a little bit with the, with the history. And uh, so some of the things that Dr. Williams was talking about with respect to the reasons that black and brown people and, and African-Americans in particular are more likely to, to uh, get coronavirus or to get COVID or to die from it. Those kind of, those, those are symptoms of what sits on a 400 year history of economic exclusion and exploitation, right? And it's not just slavery, nothing, you know, that didn't end, that didn't even come close to ending in 1865. And I, even Jim Crow, obviously, which went on for another century, but you have all these other ways in which, uh, in which white people were given kind of handouts or sort of help to build wealth or to, be, to join the middle class, things like the GI Bill and the Homestead Act and, and uh, you know, on up well, the, the low interest housing loans from, that were from the programs created in the New Deal that overwhelmingly black people were excluded from all of that, right? So that, that right up until virtually the present and, and to some extent still to this day, and we still have deeply segregated uh, cities. And, and if anybody thinks, well, to the extent that people take comfort, well, yeah, well, that's a Southern thing. There's a lot of racism in the South. Well, actually most of the most segregated cities in the country are in the North, um, Chicago, New York, Cleveland, Detroit, St. Louis, Boston. Uh, Etc. So, you know, <laughs> it's it's deep. And then if you look at the data today, housing segregation, as I mentioned, employment discrimination, the, the 
these studies keep being repeated that show that to this day, if you file, uh, people do these studies where somebody who has the exact same qualifications for a job, if their name is Jamal, they're much less likely to get a call for an interview than if their name is Brad. Um, on and on, this is 2020, not 1950. Um, in an education system, we have these deep and cruel inequalities in the quality of education that children are afforded. And it's, it doesn't, it's not entirely 100% on racial lines, but there's a strong correlation, right? You're much, much more likely to be going to an underfunded, under-resourced school if you're black or brown than if you're white. Um, you know, this, this stuff isn't really, isn't really hard. And so I think one of the, one of the uh, shifts that has to take place for a, lot of, for a lot of white folks who are sort of relatively new to thinking about this in any kind of deep way is that we are, we are, our, our culture tells us to see these as deficits in those communities of color. Why are so many black people in poverty? Yeah, hmm. They just, I don't know, they kind of need to get their act together somehow. I wonder, maybe, maybe there's some way we could help them kind of get their act together. No. <laughs> it's a 400-year history of exclusion and exploitation that has made it very, very difficult for people to get to build any kind of an economic foothold. So that even today, uh, and I'm sure some folks on the panel can probably attest to this, even African-Americans or professionals today have a, have a nice income, might well be supporting their, their parents, uh, right? Because there's this deep history of, of struggling to have any kind of a economic um, footing. Whereas somebody like me is much more likely to, to, uh, to have been able to get help from my parents, right, in order to build the life that I built. Um, so it's, it's, it's very, very real. And I do think that's, a, that's part of the wake-up call that's happening now. Um, so when people see something like, um, as James said, a stark moment like this, um, Derek Chauvin, putting his knee on. I mean, there was something even different about the quality of that, right? Even compared to as much as I think for a lot of us, so many of these shootings of unarmed black people by police seem just completely outrageous and unnecessary and wrong. Um, there's just no ambiguity at all in, in what Derek, you know, in what this Minneapolis officer did and look on his face and the, and the, the kind of calm smirk and the cruelty of that, um, I do think that there was that something, something special happened with that, and, and it becomes absolutely undeniable. Thank you. Um, I think I want to uh, move towards this issue of how do we, in the positions that we all hold, help our patients and um, other colleagues in managing and dealing with this new reality. Um, as the, and I'll speak to the physicians in particular, like at, um, one of the questions that popped in the chat um, was to discuss how racism affects and structural inequities affects how you treat your patients and, and the kinds of things that you see in your day-to-day -day practice. And I, I feel like I want, I, I want to have that conversation, not in these sort of just the global, like, oh, well, we know 
if this happens and there's this data, but more of a like an on a personal level of what what's that family that pops in your head that you that you know the only reason why they're suffering is because of an inequity and racism and it just kind of hits you in your soul, right? Because I think that understanding it at that level is something that many don't get to do. They kind of throw people in the bucket of the numbers and don't really have the face. I, I want you clinicians, and, and Damon, I'll even ask you to, to join in on that one, to, to help us see that patient. Um, I, I would love to go with that first. Sorry, Eduardo and James. Uh, there's so many examples that pop in my mind uh, that I'm just trying to narrow down to a few, but I can use just one, uh, a young 28-year-old female African-American who I treated for interstitial lung disease, right? We're, uh, we're here with chest and talk about lung disease. I can use numerous examples, but I'll just use her as an example. Uh, some idiopathic interstitial lung disease which led to fibrosis. She needed a lung transplant. She was uninsured. She could not get a lung transplant. So if you look at just talking about healthcare access, so life-saving procedures, lung transplant, which we all advocate for, someone who did not have insurance can't get the transplant. And even then, she was able to obtain Medicaid, uh, Mississippi Medicaid. Of course, I practice in Mississippi. Uh, we don't do lung transplants in Mississippi, so she'd have to go to uh, the nearest is Alabama and New Orleans. And some of those places don't accept Mississippi Medicaid, Right. So even if she were, when she got the Medicaid, there was only one place who said, we'll agree to accept it. This young lady died after us doing all we could for her. She's 28 with three children. And it's heart-wrenching. That's just one story that just hits home to me personally for someone that I cared for. And to show that inequity and how that is structurally a problem. And we all took a Hippocratic oath to take care of patients, right? We went into medicine to make people's lives better, to help, help them have better health. And we can't do that because structural issues prevented me from helping take care of that young lady. I would also say, you know, from another angle, you know, to that same point, how racism has affected how I'm able to practice as a physician. It, um, you know, that there is a lot of distrust, unfortunately, in the African-American community. Um, towards all systems, as we've seen towards law enforcement, but that level of distrust um, also extends itself to the healthcare field. And so I often do have patients that, you know, may not necessarily trust what we're doing for them, um, both in the clinic setting as well as in, in the intensive care setting, you know, that they may not trust what's going on or they may have concerns that they're being experimented on, you know, which look at the uh, Tuskegee experiment. There actually have been um, times in American history that African-Americans have been used um, as experiments and people still do have those fears and concerns to this day. And obviously people's compliance and adherence to treatment, you know, affects outcomes. And, you know, so that definitely um, can be a, a difficulty that um, I do often have to work through um, gaining the trust of my patients that I share the same skin color with, but still the system as a whole, they still have a distrust for. I think there's a couple points to highlight on this topic and I'll, I'll go through them systematically. So 
The first is the physician. Our role is to is to is to be with our patients, to be a, a partner in their health. And as a primary care physician in particular, you know, we tend to look at the whole picture. So when we get to know our patients, you know, how does where they live, work, learn, and play, how does it affect their well-being? And for the patient population that I take care of, that is a victim of structural inequity, uh, whether it's the Somali American population, whether it's the African American population or the Latinx population, um, first and foremost, I want them to know that I'm, I'm there for them, that I'm gonna do everything that I can to be a partner in their health. That being said, we all know that the individual clinician and patient, that relationship can only go so far when we're talking about the structural determinants of health. So first and foremost, I wanna make sure that my patients know uh, I understand um, the, their problems and I understand the situation that we find ourselves in. And they often know this. <laughs> We're the ones that often don't express it, but they're often, my patients are often keenly aware of why they're not well and what are the barriers to them getting well. What happens often in these situations is that because this is such a daunting task, physicians, primary care providers, often uh, if, there, if there's no racial uh, concordance between patient and provider, uh, get burnt out. Because this mountain is so high to climb, they and and it's so daunting and they've tried and they failed often to get a procedure get a medication covered by insurance um the message that they internalize is that this is just it's not doable and they and 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 it becomes uh, a situation where unfortunately we don't provide the highest level of care again to the patients that need it the most so what is the solution to this as I mentioned before, we don't do a good job in education in general, but particularly in medical education, in, in training doctors, primary care doctors, specialists, to understand the social determinants of health, to then be able to put pressure on these things outside of the clinic so that we're both advocating for our patients outside of the clinic when we talk about insurance reforms, when we talk about um, uh, housing, and we talk about uh, police violence, which we know directly affect the well-being of our patients. If we don't know that, that we can have an impact on those things, then we leave money on the table. And it's incumbent on medical education in 2020 to start addressing those things. And in fact, we see that students now in medical schools are insisting that they get this education because it will allow them to take care of their patients. And that's what they want to do. They want to be there for their patients. And I would submit that the purpose of public health and medicine, if anything, is to eliminate and protect our patients, eliminate illness, disease, and promote well-being. We have to be anti-racist to do that. So the purpose, in my mind, of healthcare and public health is to challenge these systemic inequities, or else what are we doing? I mean, that's, that's, that's what I ask uh, our leadership uh, in our professional organizations. That's what I ask leadership in the medical school. You know, are we here to help or are we not here to help? Exactly. And I think that that's kind of the question that we're asking now through with CHEST is what are we going to do? Because that is the call. 
Um, and just as a, a side note, we are taking questions in the Q&A, so please feel free to put them in. I'm going to start bringing some of them out so that we can make sure we can try and answer as many as possible. Uh, John, I'll direct this one to you because it's, it's kind of in the vein of um, I'm white, how do I help fix this? Um, there are two questions that uh, specifically talk about how as a white provider do I work to chip away at the disparities that I see in my practice? So what things can I do to be better? And then there's a, another one that, um, that speaks to the challenges a little bit of how we've been talking about racism as an infiltration of these systems and instead truly says, which I think we all agree to and, and words are very important, so I think we need to restate it, that racism was the foundation of these systems. It, it, didn't, it wasn't brought in. They were designed uh, upon racist ideology to work the way that they were designed to work. So what we're seeing is, in fact, the outcomes of what these systems were supposed to do. So thank you for making sure that that clarification is there. The healthcare system was not designed to take care of Black people uh, in the way that we, it was designed to take care of white people. So um, I think that the part of the question that I want, John, you to, to address along with the I, I'm white, what do I do? is how can we help um, other white people, especially those interested in wanting to become allies, how can we help them start that journey without them having to do what many do, which is go to black people and say, what do I do? Thank you. Um, so what do I do as a white person? And, 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 and again, and I, I, think, I think everybody will recognize that as a non-physician, as not, I'm, I'm going to answer it in a very broad sense, not like here's how to deal with your patients uh, exactly. But, but yeah, how to how to address the inequities? Um, uh, well, actually, what what Dr. Medina just said is is a huge part of the answer, which is just having a recognition, just as a citizen of this country, uh, who votes, for example. <laughs> or who may be able to get involved in making social change in other ways, that these things are, are all related. Um, and that we have, to, we have to probably go beyond reform. We need to you know, really take down and re rebuild a lot of our institutions and our systems uh, in some pretty fundamental ways. Um, and so, however it is that we can be involved in, in working on that. Um, so I, I would like to, you know, suggest this analogy that's one that's been extremely powerful for me, it comes from the Racial Equity Institute, which they're, they're a group of uh, anti-racist trainers based where I am in North Carolina. And they're actually featured prominently in the Seeing White series of so a workshop that they do. Although this, this precise thing isn't in there, but they draw the analogy. They say, if you, you're out for a stroll and you walk past a lake and you see a number of fish floating at the surface of the lake, dead or dying, and you think, hmm, I wonder what's wrong with those fish. And so you walk on and you come back a couple days later and there's more fish floating, there's fish floating at the lake. And so every time you wash past, walk past this lake, there are fish floating on the surface. And, and at a certain point, instead of asking what's wrong with those fish, you ask yourself, what's wrong with the water? Um, and so I think that's, that came to mind, Eduardo, when you were making your point about 
you know, physicians who are dealing with African-American patients who, who are much more likely to be, uh, to have high blood pressure or asthma or et cetera, et cetera, right? It's how you, it's how you treat that problem, but how do we create a society in which people are, are, don't disproportionately have those problems and unnecessarily have those problems because of the conditions that they're living in, or for that matter, have hypertension because of the stress of being a black person in a white supremacist country. Um, so that's that, that kind of deeper level of change. And I think there's some interesting things going on even with it, uh, uh, an, uh, a kind of analogy too is with teachers unions who are starting to be active, not just on behalf of the, you know, uh, themselves and the things that teachers are usually fighting for, but uh, leveraging with a power that they have in their community to deal with a, a shortage of low income housing, right? Because their students are suffering and coming to school with disadvantages because of the what you know because there's a lack of low income housing in their community, right? It's a it's a very analogous kind of situation that we need to be thinking kind of holistically as as human beings and as citizens. What was the second question, Mecca? Yeah. Oh, it was uh, so it was that, and then sort of the where do I begin as a white person? Like that that how do I take those first steps to becoming an an anti-racist ally? Yeah, there are lots of lists making the rounds these days about, you know, what to read. And I I could suggest one podcast in particular that you might, you know, that you could listen to along with many others. Uh, You know, get educated. I do think, and I said this even to my, there was a conversation that took place in my family, my family of origin and, and my siblings and our, we have a whole bunch of, you know, young adult children that, that was unlike a conversation we've ever had before about race. And, uh, and I think that's happening in a lot of families. And, um, you know, one thing I said was don't uh, be so concerned about immediately running out. And yes, sure, if you, you know, write a few checks and you have some ideas about who would be good people to write checks to, I'm not going to tell you not to do that. But, but, but spend some time and, and learn. Uh, because I do think if we're going to be really useful uh, warriors in the struggle against systemic racism long term, we need to have a, so many of us need to have a deep under, understanding, deeper understanding than we have about how this all works and how we got here. And, and actually, therefore, what sort of change really needs to happen. And so that it's not about kind of band-aids and, and fixing fish. It's about it's about, you know, changing the groundwater that comes into that lake so that we can have a healthy lake for, for, for everybody. Can I chime in a little bit on that, Neca? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I have some of my white friends and colleagues that ask that same question. Uh, and I know there are several other questions over here, so I'll try not to take more than 45 seconds. But uh, where does the learning, John talked about learning, and I definitely advocate that and support that. But where does the learning become translational? Right. When we learn, if we haven't known about structural inequities, structural racism, where does it become translational? And I'll tell you, we told you guys we're going to make you feel uncomfortable. And here, here I go. Uh, it has to be translational in your practices, in your beliefs, in your voting, because we cannot continue to put people in place that, A, don't acknowledge these inequities, 
B, for sure don't advocate for them. Simple things, we're talking about healthcare, you know, what can our organization do? There's no reason that every state in this country should not have expanded Medicaid when the federal government was covering 90% of that, right? You get more people to have some type of coverage. So if we are really introspective, those who say, I want to change, I want to contribute, we have to look and say, am I voting for my own interest, my pocketbook? You know, those of us who are physicians, we're in the top 5% of earners in this country. So it's easy for me to vote for people who have fiscally conservative ideals. But where's the altruism that we talk about that we want to see in our medical students and in our trainees that we think about others, not just ourselves. So we have to put our money where our mouth is and say, it has to be my advocacy work. It has to be where I'm voting to try to help improve things in this country. And I think, Damon, I will just add on to that, and I would ask you and James in particular to speak to it, is how does, how do we as members of an organization like Chess, how do we help as membership help the organization be guiding lights in this, this direction, right? I mean, what can we do to activate the membership, to build initiatives, to have lobbying through Chess? Like, what would be an ideal um, response if, if uh, we got asked now, say your dream of what chess should look like, what, what would that dream be? And I think this is an opportunity to say, you know, we're, if we're going to truly take this to the next level and help our members be better, which will directly impact the patients that we care for, what is that going to look like? And what do we expect from chess? James, you're the up and coming new young whippersnapper here. So what is a good version of chess for you? Um, you know, I, I think true power comes from having a seat at the table, you know, having a seat in, you know, administration, having a seat in leadership, you know, chess has been an organization for um, over 80 years. And from what I could see, I saw that there was one previous pr president of color, one black man. And so I think things start there. Um, additionally, you know, kind of going back to some of the racial inequities, I think chess could be on the forefront of, of, of advocating um, for change and lobbying for change from the federal government. You know, African Americans are more likely to live among transportation hubs in areas of, of uh, poor air quality and toxic waste sites. I think um, chess could advocate, you know, towards helping to change those things and, and, and helping to advance policy because that's where the real change happens. You know, it's, it's, it's great for people to, to march and, and post and attend webinars and, and read, but, but real change happens um, in, with policy, and those are actionable things that we could do. You know, as well as on top of, um, you know, helping with medical education, you know, really helping to educate the next um, round of doctors that, that, that want to have this education, you know, helping to... Um, see that programs are promoting people of color. You know, I, I had the privilege of, of, you know, working with, you know, an African-American head um, of the uh, fellowship program. I also worked with a pulmonologist after college um, who was an MD, PhD also as well, another black man. So, you know, I had the opportunity to see people that looked like me in places of power. And that really helps to inspire anyone um, to feel that certain dreams are attainable, you know, when they, they see um, visions of themselves in higher places. So I think that's uh, one way that chess 
um, organization can definitely um, help to um, advance these causes and, and to really put action you know, behind uh, the good sentiment that we have at this time. And, and so that we can get some, some questions, I'll stop talking so much. But I agree with everything James said. In addition, CHEST needs to be active in the community. Um, there are proposals that I know that are, that are coming up now where we can go into communities that you know have issues, not just to do, and we, and we do these things, by the way, at the annual meeting, every community we're in, uh, I definitely give CHESS credit for that for our philanthropic work. We do a great job with that, but we can do more and go into the communities and invest more into those communities that really are facing the inequities. So maybe, uh, Nick, I don't know if you want to switch to make sure that some of these folks have put their time in to get some questions into. <laughs> I was going to do that. Yeah, I think, Dr. Medina, there's one specific to you uh, about um, how do we improve African-Americans and, um, and other of color students in, in medicine, because African-Americans are only 13% of the population, but only 7% of medical students. So what can we do at a trainee level to try and, uh, and bring in more? And just kind of in addition to that, how do we help improve the curriculum to be more honest and real? Um, because I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, I don't know what that looks like on black skin because my dermatology textbook never had a picture of black skin. So how, what can we do to address at that level? Absolutely. And, and I would certainly defer to uh, the black physicians that are on this panel, because I think it's really important to have that representation and voice you know, uh, to speak from experience. And, and I wholeheartedly acknowledge why I am, I, I work deeply in this. I, um, I do not have that experience as an African-American in this system. And I value, I value that uh, understanding because I do know precisely as an asset in our medical schools, that's important that we have a class, we have future doctors that do have that experience so that they are prepared to address the needs of all communities when it comes to uh, being the future of healthcare. So <clears throat> I would ask the person that asked that question and those of us that are thinking about it, look, look no further than our own experiences. How did we end up as healthcare professionals? It didn't start when we applied to medical school. It didn't start when we applied to college. It probably didn't even start in high school. So I'm sure that's when our, eyes, our ideas start to get formed. It, it, it starts at, throughout the life course, okay? And John talked about the horrible education inequities in this country. And my question is, what do you expect to happen if historically people have been disenfranchised from educational opportunity? If the uh, African-Americans were systemically excluded from professional society? If our hospital wards were segregated, what do you expect the outcome to be? Do you think we're going to have equity in healthcare? No, of course not. So we have to, again, acknowledge where we have been and address those historical, um, uh, historical elements that have propagated or, or propped up this system uh, for such a long time. So specifically, we have to talk about funding of education in this country, okay? We have to talk about uh, equitable resources when it comes to class size. We have to talk about uh, making a difference when it comes to identifying 
role models. Because often we know that if you can't see it, you don't believe it. So, and we know, we know that there are role models uh, throughout history and even in current times, but they're often not highlighted and they're often not um, uh, acknowledged. So this is not gonna be an easy process. It didn't happen overnight, but if we don't get started, it's never going to happen. Okay, so I, I think that to address the gap in uh, medical student admissions between uh, white students and other students, the, the program, we have to have a long-term program. And we also have to acknowledge the assets that non-white students bring to their classes, the voices and the experiences uh, that they have that allow them to take care of patients that other white doctors may not be expertly suited to. That doesn't mean that they can't do it, but allow a, uh, a multitude of experiences to be present in medical school. Reinforce that through education, absolutely. And then I think we would all benefit from that as a healthcare system. We're getting down to the last two minutes and I, and I have a, a really um, good question that I think um, we, all the panelists can, can speak to. Um, there's this issue of, of, of helping deal with racism when it's in your face. How can we help um, the next level of trainees who have people in authority who are being racist or propagating racist policies? How do we help them face that? And at the next level, how do we help clinicians or um, members of, of, of medical practices who have administrators or other people in the C-suite who just won't engage in these conversations? What is some advice that you would give them to try and, and push through those barriers to help move this forward? And I'll just go in the order in which I see. John, you're first. Well, I guess what I would say is that, it, you know, just to start with it, it just has to be unacceptable. And I think that there are so many in, in, in virtually every um, sector of our lives and our society and every institution, we've, we've let it slide. We've let racism slide for far too long. And um, just, the, you know, the, uh, there's a, in, in, in every uh, section of our life and our economy and so on, there, there are analogies to the to the police officers who stand by and watch someone crush someone's life out um, and think, well, he probably shouldn't be doing that, but darn, you know, I mean, we just, we need to be intervening and speaking up wherever we see it. And, and not only, not only brutal overt racism, but more subtle forms of it and, and microaggressions and harm and, ways in which, you know, even if people of color aren't observing it, but that it may affect the way that it's, is, you know, someone is being treated or whatever. We just, we have to, as, as white people and as, as every, you know, everyone, we just need to be speaking up. And, and, and we need to also be, be willing to listen when we're called on something, because I think this goes to this phenomenon of white fragility, right? Where someone if someone suggests, uh, you know, that was a little off what you did there, we get all like, are you calling me a racist? And you're not a, no, we need to be able to 
realize that we've all been steeped in a white supremacist culture all our lives. And yeah, we're going to screw up sometimes. And uh, we need to be willing to hear it when somebody calls us on it. Take a breath, say, okay, maybe I need to think about that. Maybe I need to apologize. Maybe I need to do differently next time. Do better. Thank you. Eduardo, you're next. So, so often in this situation, the onus falls on people of color to be the receiver, the educator, and then the activator, the activist, when it comes to making these changes. And I would just advocate that this burden has to be shared. It has to be shared across uh, colleagues, administrators, uh, staff, um, and when we all acknowledge that really an, an insult to one of us is an insult to all of us, then we will take, we will take the, the appropriate measures. And I think up to this point, we've been able to say that's somebody else's problem. Those kids that are in cages, uh, in detention cages for immigration, those are somebody else's kids. Uh, that kid, that was shot on the street, that, that's, not, that's not my kid. And we have to get to the point where, as doctors, we see that all of these people are our patients. I, I am almost certain that George Floyd was someone's patient. And we took an oath to advocate for our patients. Health systems, took an av uh, health systems have a role in protecting their patients. And they should, again, comply with that, um, that role that we play in society. Because when we abdicate it, this is what happens. Thank you. James, some final words? Yes, as, as every, I agree with everything that's already been said. You know, as we continue to talk about racism, there are racists that propagate racism. So we can't separate ourselves from that. And we can't separate ourselves from the fact that we see those people because that's the only way that racism can exist. And it's our duty for us to confront um, those situations. It's, it's other white people's duty to confront those situations in their families, in their churches, in their workplaces. And so, you know, once, once those things happen, you know, we can start the hard work because it's not going to be something that's going to happen quickly or easily or painlessly. You know, as a country, nothing's, nothing's been done after a peaceful march. You know, there's been a lot of hard work you know, a lot of tears, many times loss of life. And, you know, people have to be willing, you know, to be uncomfortable, to be uncomfortable to understand the privilege that they've received, to be uncomfortable um, with seeing other people being disadvantaged and be comfortable enough to speak out on that. And, you know, hopefully, you know, we, hopefully those people, you know, feel support of other people around them to speak up and you know aren't shamed into silence or or fear for their own personal retaliation because that is another issue and, and hopefully people can realize that you know that there are a lot of allies around them you know for doing the right thing thank you we know we've run over time and we want to thank our panelists and and i want to thank my co-moderator NECA and uh, specifically thank Steve Simpson for asking us to do this and, and Beth and all the folks that are behind the scenes at CHEST for helping bring this together. 
Uh, this was much needed, and we're looking forward to doing more. This is just the beginning, as Steve said. Uh, it's for sure not the end. It's just the beginning of what we'll do uh, as members of CHEST. NECA. Yes. Thank you all. Have a good evening. Thank you, guys.